welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. President Trump calls special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian election meddling a disaster as he stood next to Vladimir Putin at a news conference in Helsinki earlier. But Putin said that Trump had asked him about the 12 Russian intelligence agents indicted in Mueller's investigation on Friday. Let's uh, get back to the issue of these 12 alleged intelligence officers of, uh, of Russia. I don't know the full extent of the situation, but the President Trump mentioned this issue, and I will look into it. We're joined by Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, once again, President Trump refused to give credence to the investigation despite the indictments on Friday. What's your reaction? Well, it's deeply disturbing to say the least. It appears that the president has decided to align himself with uh, President Putin and against the U.S. intelligence community, including the CIA, the National Security Agency, the DOJ, and all of the other members of the intelligence agency. So he's favoring Russia, and he's uh, raising questions regarding the credibility of uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, their investigation, and their efforts. We know that Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein talked to Trump about the indictments before, well before he left, early in, in the week. And um, he mentioned that he said that the president should know because the president needs to have the knowledge and all that we know in this area. And then we had White House spokeswoman Lindsey Walters saying that the charges include no allegations of knowing involvement by anyone on the campaign and no allegations Uh that the alleged hacking affected the election result. So how important are, are those indictments in light of that? Well, again, I think it, it, it's shocking that the White House is more concerned about whether or not these indictments uh, against these 12 or the indictment against these 12 Russian military intelligence officers implicates uh, Trump and the members of the Trump presidential campaign and less concerned about whether or not these efforts by the Russians are, are un- have undermined uh, our democracy with respect to the, the 2016 presidential campaign and are continuing to um- undermine our democracy with respect to the upcoming 2018 campaign. There appears to be less concern or less interest regarding regarding those efforts to uh, to compromise democracy in the United States. Jimmy, let's look a little bit at the a little closer at that indictment. It, the, he, they're very specific about Russian activities taking place on the same day as Trump made that infamous address where he asked Russia to find Hillary Clinton's 30,000 missing emails. Is this setting up for something in the future? I mean, can we read into this or should we not? Well, I think it is interesting how how Mueller has has progressed and how the investigation has evolved with respect to the specific allegations regarding Russian interference in the presidential election. So the first indictment dealt with... um, uh, Russians involved in, in using social media to uh, foment uh, discord, to sow discord, to create chaos, to pit uh, one group of Americans against another group of Americans. So that's the first indictment. Now the second indictment actually goes into the into the hacking, the stealing of information from John Podesta's um, John Podesta's emails, about fifty thousand emails. 
uh, were stolen by the Russians, as alleged in the indictment, and then the hacking into the uh, the Democratic National Committee's um, computers. So, so I think in 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 one way he he's educating the public regarding how Russia interfered with the the the, the presidential election, and it could very well be that the next indictment to come is the indictment that pulls the trigger on on American involvement in in this fraud and and in this conspiracy. Well, the indictment does show the actions, alleged actions of unidentified Americans, including a candidate for Congress, a Republican lobbyist who ran a Florida politics blog, and a political political operative. And people have been speculating about who those people might be. Um, Does the fact that they're unindicted mean that they're clear or mean that they're possibly next up or doesn't mean anything. Well, it, it, it is unclear. I mean, the, the fact that they, for, for example, Roger Stone has, you know, he's a, he's a formal, uh, former advisor to the, to the Trump presidential campaign, and he himself has, has admitted, he's conceded, he says, I'm probably the individual that's referenced in the indictment with respect to communicating with uh, Guccifer 2.0 and so forth. And, and so, but the fact that, that, that he wasn't named in this indictment certainly does not mean that he couldn't be named in, in a future indictment. And so I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But again, I think this is a very methodical way that, that the Mueller team has, has gone about educating the public, uh, again, to, to lend credibility to, to, to these allegations. It's not just simply some claim, but there's, uh, there is just detail upon detail, level and le- layer and layer of details of information regarding the strategy, how the strategy was implemented, and the steps, the meticulous steps that were taken to, uh, to again, to attempt to interfere with a campaign in favor of Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton. We have about a minute here, minute here Jimmy. Um, Roger Stone has not been interviewed by Mueller. And so people are, legal analysts are saying, well, that could be an indication that he's going to be indicted because usually prosecutors don't talk to people that are the targets of their investigation, but it could also mean nothing. Yeah, well, that's that's true, but it is a general rule. It's a general principle that targets of the investigation uh, are not of criminal investigation are not put before or subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury. So this would be consistent with that principle, mean the meaning that that uh, he could be indicted uh, later on. All right, thanks so much, Jimmy. The hunt for information on this continues. That's Jimmy Garule, professor at Notre Dame Law School. The Justice Department has reopened its investigation into the murder of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black teenager whose brutal killing became a symbol of the civil rights movement. There was renewed interest in the case last year when the woman who testified that Till had flirted with her admitted to lying in a book written by Duke University historian Timothy Tyson. Here's Tyson. I find it uh, remarkable that suddenly this is hitting the uh, front pages when they are in Uh, such dire straits about their race politics. He's talking about his, uh, about the Trump administration there. Joining me is Clenora Hudson-Weems, professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia and author of Emmett Till, The Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement. Clenora, explain Emmett Till's impact on the civil rights movement. Well, actually, um, initially no one wanted to think of it as uh, being of any real significance, uh, in 1980, 
five when I started my research uh, and uh, made it clear to my uh, uh, committee at the University of Iowa that uh, Emmett Till was the catalyst. That wasn't the issue. So I'm happy that we got past that. I was able to defend a dissertation in 1988, and, and everything else uh, since then is, uh, you know, it's, it's just a done deal. Uh, Emmett Till actually happened August 28th, 1955, in Money, Mississippi. He was brutally lynched for whistling at a white woman. People want to say that he allegedly whistled, but, of course, my research has proven uh, from the very beginning that he did, in fact, whistle. Uh, that wasn't the point. Uh, that still didn't give them the right to kill him, but that's what happened. Uh, so <clears throat> with that uh, having happened, uh, Emmett was uh, lynched uh, three months and three days prior to Rosa Parks' refusal to relinquish her bus seat uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, three months and three days after that, December 1, 1955, and actually uh Emmett, uh, she later, much later admitted that uh, when someone asked why didn't she go to the back, she said she thought about Emmett <clears throat> and uh, she couldn't go back. So we're saying that, first of all, Emmett Till happened before uh, Rosa Parks' demonstration, which actually set the stage for the Montgomery bus boycott. And so, then uh, secondly, um, it, it's just something that uh, has just grown. All, the, uh, all of the uh, pieces are coming together. Emmett was the true catalyst of the civil rights movement, and what I wanted to do was to uh, free him from being from the stigma of being an embarrassment to the movement because no one wanted to talk about it. Thirty-three so, years. Clitora, uh, let's uh, let's passed. let's move on to the Justice Department reopening the case. The Justice Department reopened the case in two thousand four, but closed it three years later because the statute of limitations had expired on federal charges. Why would the outcome be any different now, more than a decade later? I think that people are more sensitive uh, to uh, fair treatment. Uh, a lot of emphasis is on diversity and, uh, and, and fairness. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I am absolutely elated uh, that the case is being reopened because it wasn't resolved properly. It wasn't fair. Uh, and so it needs to be corrected. Uh, historical wrongs have to be corrected or we will forever be hunted by them. And so I think that uh, that was true with Mr. Whitten, who was the focus of my uh, last book, uh, Emmett Legacy, Redemption, and Forgiveness, because uh, he was very remorseful and spent a lifetime atoning by representing poor blacks in the state of Mississippi pro bono. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that uh, <clears throat> people today want to do the right thing. I think that if we give our people a chance to do the right thing, they'll do it. And so if this trial is reopened, we get a chance to posthumously uh, find those two murderers uh, guilty of a crime. Uh, Even though they've, as, uh, they've both, yeah. both uh, it's almost 63 years later, both men who were charged have died. The woman who is at the center who said that she lied is in her 80s, and it can't be prosecuted as a hate crime because it was committed uh, after 1968. So any conclusions might be symbolic? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's more than that. Number one is uh, <clears throat> we have a justice system. Uh, when you go to court and you raise your hand and testify and say that you are going to tell the truth and the whole truth will help you, God, you are responsible for that. Uh, <clears throat> she has admitted many years later that, uh, that uh, her testimony uh, went a bit far. We know that Emmett whistled, but all of the touching and the things that she said that he uh, did, actually she was agreeing with the uh, prosecuting attorney, <clears throat> 
that uh, Emmett had touched her and asked her for a date and uh, did more than the whistle. He whistled, but that was the, that was the extent of it. Now, uh, she uh, has uh, testified, has, has admitted, rather, uh, many years later <clears throat> that that was wrong, that was a lie. And so Emmett lied. Emmett, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Carolyn Bryant lied and Emmett died. That's the thing. That's very, very significant. We have to look at that and correct it. She is guilty of perjury. Perjury is a crime. And she needs to be prosecuted on the basis of the crime that she committed. Um, let me ask you this. We heard the author, Timothy Tyson, say he's suspicious about the timing here. And he said it's a political show for an administration criticized for its racial politics. Do you agree with that or disagree? Totally disagree. I don't think that, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, when we talk about the race factor, it becomes a bad thing. Uh, it's not a bad thing if there are some commonalities in the uh, in the uh, information that's being presented or the the very uh, fact of the matter, uh, the, 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 I guess you would say, the underlying uh, theme there or the goal of, or objective, that's okay. Uh, but look at it as it's in its own, you know, circle. It's, it's a case that hasn't been resolved properly. It hasn't been, it hasn't been treated. Emmett has not been treated properly, nor has his family, nor have uh, African Americans. That's why we feel many of them, and I call them Emmett Till continuums, because people want to say, hey, you know, that happened a long time ago, and that's it, and so what, uh, you know, and, and, and you dismiss it, and it gives, it, 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 it gives the wrong message. We have to leave it there. Thank you. That's Clenora Hudson-Weems, professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.